Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, where I try to educate you about football and maybe throw in a little bit of life stuff on the side. And this week, it's going to be all football. We're going to be doing a preview of the two championship games, the AFC and NFC games in Kansas City and New Orleans, respectively, with a guy I admire a lot and really, really respect his opinion, Bill Barnwell of ESPN.com. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Joe Banner, longtime NFL executive. Uh, And Joe Banner, for 11 years, uh, was the decision maker, the top executive of the Philadelphia Eagles. He knows the organization very, very well. And we're going to ask him for his scouting report on what the Eagles will do with Nick Foles. So before we get to those, just a couple of thoughts about the weekend that I just had in New Orleans and the weekend ahead that I'm going to have in Kansas City. You know, I think like, uh, and I'll talk to Bill Barnwell about this, he thought that there's a very good chance this is the best um, combination, best set of two games on a championship weekend that he recalls. And all these things obviously are very, very subjective. But when I look back and look at great championship weekends, I don't see a weekend that sets up as good as this one because I I think there's a couple of things going on. Number one, um, there's three coaches who have coached in Super Bowls before. Andy Reid and Bill Belichick in the AFC game. And in the NFC game, Sean Payton obviously has won a Super Bowl with the Saints. And Sean McVay, who I think most of us feel is the rising star offensive coach uh, in the NFL. So you've got the the whole thought that we're going to see a lot of imaginative, fun, different stuff this week than we would see in a normal week. That's number one. And number two, I think what's so fun about the uh, the prospect of seeing these two matchups is that we're going to see two quarterbacks who are walk-in Hall of Famers in Tom Brady and Drew Brees. Another quarterback who's the MVP of the NFL this year, he'll get that award on February 2nd at NFL Honors on Saturday night in New Orleans, and that's Patrick Mahomes uh, after his 50-touchdown, 5,000-yard season um, with the Kansas City Chiefs. And then 
you, you've got the other quarterback, the, everybody who is that everybody's sort of forgetting about, Jared Goff, who I bet if if you saw my MVP ballot in Week Eight, Jared Goff would be right in there with Patrick Mahomes. So you've got four quarterbacks, all of whom are capable of throwing for three fifty and three touchdowns. Now, the weather in Kansas City is probably going to limit that, but you've got four very good quarterbacks. Just going to tell you one very quick story about uh, my time in New Orleans and what I saw from the Saints. The Saints are winning games a little bit different right now. Uh, they're not winning. Uh, you know, they won against the the Rams when they met earlier in the season in Week Nine, I believe, forty-five to thirty-five. And uh, so they they're they're winning a little bit more with defense. And there was really a pall over the Superdome. Uh, when Sheldon Rankins, uh, who's been their best interior defensive player this year, um, went out with uh, a leg injury that'll prevent him from playing the rest of the year. Um, And so without Sheldon Rankins, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see how the New Orleans Saints uh, stop the, the Rams ground game, which was so incredibly good against Dallas's uh, defensive front. So so that's an issue there. But but I I just want to tell you a quick story that, that was kind of fun. I I waited until Drew Brees finished with his his press conference after the game. And you know, I've known Brees for, for quite a while. And usually when I go cover a Saints game, I make sure that I check in with him just to make sure I'm not missing anything or or anything. And so I I came and, and asked him about a couple of the plays in the game. He was very good, as he always is. And what was interesting after that, just as I left, I said, hey, what are you going to do Tuesday? And he goes, oh, you mean my birthday? And I said, yeah. And, you know, as everybody knows, we're recording this on uh, Tuesday of this week. Today is Drew Brees' 40th birthday. And I thought that was an interesting thing that now, potentially for the second year in a row, there could be a quarterback in the Super Bowl, um, you know, who's after the age of, after his 40th birthday. And so uh, he said, hey, I'll be grinding on Rams tape. It's not going to feel like a birthday to me. He said, but my oldest son, it's his 10th birthday. He was born on my 30th birthday. So... um, that's uh, Balin Breeze. So Balin, I'm sure, is going to have the big celebration. But but Breeze told me, hey, maybe if I'm good, they'll give me a piece of his birthday cake. But he's going to be. He told me he'd be grinding on the Rams, and which I'm sure he'll do. But Breeze really is one of the great family guys. I'm sure he's going to find uh, 11 minutes in there to sing Happy Birthday to Balin and to uh, to have a good day with him. Um, the other game that we're going to see this weekend. The one thing that I'm going to find very interesting to watch is, you know, I think we're all going to be focused and I'm trying, I'm going to try to make sure that I watch the whole game, but I am going to be focused on every movement that Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes make, because this is a situation where we're seeing a guy who in all likelihood is the greatest quarterback ever to play the game in Tom Brady and a guy who 15 years from now, who knows? I don't know what we're going to be talking about with Patrick Mahomes. But I don't believe there's ever been a guy who, in terms of of how he plays, the production that he has, and how sudden, 
Suddenly, he became a magnificent, huge star in the NFL. And, you know, this is the biggest game of his professional career. It's also his 18th start as an NFL player. And he's going head-to-head with Tom Brady to try to prevent Tom Brady from going to his ninth Super Bowl. How amazing is that? One quarterback and one coach playing coaching in nine Super Bowls, Belichick Brady. Well, what stands in the way is probably an eight-degree day uh, evening in Kansas City and the young magician known as Patrick Mahomes. That's where I'll be Sunday, and uh, I, quite frankly, am really, really excited just talking about it, and I know that when I step into the press box that day early, I'm going to say, come on, 5.40 p.m. Central Time can't get here fast enough. And now my conversation with ESPN.com's Bill Barnwell. Back on the Peter King Podcast. Happy to be joined by Bill Barnwell of ESPN. He's one of my must-reads every week. Um, Every Monday, I fear that in my column, I'm not going to have something that Bill has in his column. And what is so (laughs) great at ESPN.com, and what is so great about Bill and what he does is I I call it sort of instant perspective. And, you know, Bill basically wondered this week uh, and didn't just wonder it, wrote about it, you know, whether this is, you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest uh, uh, championship weekends uh, that there's ever been. And I think it's really interesting. I'm going to start there with you, Bill. Mm -hmm. I I have not gone back and really looked to see what might be a better weekend. But how strongly do you feel that this weekend might be historic? Well, I feel like I'm jinxing it by saying it. I'm really worried (laughs) they're going to get... Yeah, that it's going to be Chiefs 38-7 to or something. (laughs) Right. Right. Like, you know, Drew Brees, I'm going to get hurt in the first quarter, and then suddenly it's going to be, you know, Taysom Hill. Obviously, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope we get two great games and everyone's healthy. But you look at the numbers, you look at how these teams look relative to the rest of the teams in the NFL by simple metrics, by points scored, by points allowed, by their point differential. This is the best set of offenses we have ever seen in the history of the National Football League in the postseason. Even after you adjust for, you know, the fact that their scoring is way up this year. It's the second highest scoring uh, season in the history of the NFL. Um, even after you account for that, these are the best offenses and the worst defenses, actually, uh, in the conference championship ever. And I think just there's so many different factors that go into this. We have so many great coaches. This might be the best set of coaches I can think of uh, in a Final Four. This is the best set of uh, maybe some storylines in terms of the passing the torch angle with Brady and Mahomes and to some extent with Goff and Breeze as well. Don't know if we're going to see some of these players on the field ever again in these uniforms. I mean, there's just so many different ways to approach this. I think on paper, granted, they still have to play the games, but on paper, from what we can see right now, these look like two absolutely awesome games on Sunday. You know, I'll, I, I want to go to coaches for a second and just say that, mm-hmm. um, look, there's three coaches who have – uh, coached in Super Bowls before. And mm-hmm. the fourth coach, Sean McVay, 
I think we all think is going to coach in about 83 of them. You know, the way, <laughs> the way we talk about Sean McVay, he may not walk on water, but he's, he's, um, you know, he is, he's the guy right now. And so I just sort mm-hmm. of, I look at the coaching aspect of it is very, very interesting. And I'll give you one reason why I think that the coaching part of it is so interesting because I mm-hmm. think, there are not three, but there are four, because I'm going to count Josh McDaniels in this too. Andy Reid, mm-hmm. incredibly imaginative with with what he has done, particularly in his five wide, you know, fi- he uses 53 and a third yards of his field. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how many times a game, probably eight or 10 times a game at least, you know, in stretching out a defense and really giving Patrick Mahomes multiple options. You see Sean Payton, mm-hmm. who invents new plays every week that we've never seen before. You see Sean McVay, who takes plays that have been run for a long time, but adds a wrinkle to him and surprises teams uh, you know, with the new wrinkles he has. And then you have McDaniels, who I think um, is uh, is really, and this is crazy because he's he's been with Brady for so long and been with the Patriots so long. I think he's actually really underrated as a play designer and a play caller because mm-hmm. if you look at their game plan on Sunday against the Chargers, you saw the Chargers absolutely beat up uh, everything about the uh, the Baltimore Ravens in the wild card mm-hmm. game, and then they got to the the divisional game against the Patriots. And Bill, I think I'm right in saying this: the Patriots never in this game had a third down conversion of more than third and six. And I think they wow. only had one of those. Now, can you imagine any game you've ever watched where a team? you know, goes through a game and plays successfully on offense that has that scores in the 40s, as the Patriots did, and has only one third down where they have to convert more than five yards in 60 minutes. Startling. Incredible. And it's incredible. incredible. And and I, I only and I bring that up only because when you look at that game Everything looks so easy for New England. We've seen enough out of the Chargers this year where you know that it shouldn't be that easy. And I'm I'm mm-hmm. sick of hearing from people who say, for instance, that, oh, my God, you know, the Chargers, a 10 o'clock body clock game, uh, blah, blah, blah. Look, I mean, it's a mm-hmm. football game. You're awake. Right. Play. It's the biggest game you've played in most of these guys in their careers. Play. You're trying to dethrone Tom Brady. Play. Don't 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 give me that. I think it's a it's an easy bullcrap excuse. Anyway, I, I only raise this issue to say that. Don't forget about the imaginative Patriots when you talk about everybody else. Yeah, I think absolutely. And to your point, Peter, you know, the Chargers, I think, were undefeated in those 10 a.m. games, including, for example, that Ravens game last week, heading into the Patriots game. So, you know, I I think it matters, but it's not single-handedly going to disqualify you from winning a playoff game. And we saw in that Chargers-Patriots game, the Chargers did not have a plan B for the Patriots in that game. Once the Patriots are running them over and and going with screens and going with draws and getting those running backs involved, the Chargers didn't have a solution. Okay, well, if they get us with that, this is how we're going to counter. And I think what's smart about all these coaches in the conference championship round is that everyone knows what everyone else is going to be doing to some extent. And it's more about how can you adapt and how can you adjust and how can you play off your tendencies? And we saw that a little bit 
in the divisional round where we had the Saints on that fourth down near the goal line. Dan Orlovsky pointed it out for us at ESPN. Uh, instead of going with that screen to Michael Thomas, they fake the screen. They get Keith Kirkwood out on the uh, on the corner route and is open for a touchdown. Ends up being a really important touchdown in the context of that game. Uh, Sean McVay, uh, Ted Wynn pointed this out to me on my podcast this week, where they never, ever, ever run the ball out of the shotgun and against the Cowboys. What do you what do you know? They start running the ball out of the shotgun and it works because they spent all Nobody's year saying, Hey, we're gonna do it, this. Yeah. Right. Okay. We're gonna discipline our tendencies, we're gonna play off that and now give you something that you're not expecting, and on top of that, we're gonna do it well. So I, I think at this point, you know, it, it's gonna be about not just how smart these coaches are, but these other coaches on the other side of the field are also smart. So it's about knowing what they know and then adapting and beating them, knowing what they know before they figure out how to counter. What I find interesting also, and I want to get to your, let me get to your Peyton point first. Um, mm-hmm. What I found really, really interesting is that you you have seen time and time and time again on the play that you're referencing, the first touchdown, New Orleans struggled, struggled. Their first three series, they're awful. Uh, they're penalized. They're, you know, the Eagles are taking advantage of everything. They're up 14 nothing. This is a desperate situation for the Saints on this drive. They run the Taysom Hill fake punt, uh, and he gets the first down, running into a friggin' great wall of China, running into <laughs> Fletcher Cox and these monsters. Right. And he and he and he gets he gets four yards, not just one that he needed. But but anyway, mm-hmm. and then we go down fourth and two at the goal line, at the two yard line. And first of all, I think my feeling was because I really like Philadelphia's front. I said, man, Peyton, take the three points. Live to fight (laughs) another day. It'll be incredibly demoralizing if you don't convert. But Peyton goes for it. Mm -hmm. But here's what I love about that. And here's what I was thinking when I saw that. I saw Michael Thomas. I'm sitting in the press box. I'm at the game. I see Michael Thomas come in motion. And Mm -hmm. I say to myself, you know what he's going to do? He's going to come into motion. There's either going to be some kind of legal pick play where he gets a a sliver of daylight, and it's going to be a tight window throw from Breeze, but they're throwing it to Michael Mm -hmm. Thomas. And what I what I missed is the two corners, LeBlanc and I forget the other guy for Philadelphia, a lesser, you know, mm-hmm. a, a not a recognizable name, but a lesser right. guy is is uh, uh, they both get sort of sucked into Michael Thomas. And so Keith Kirkwood, you got to be kidding me. You're going to Keith, Keith Kirkwood, not Thomas. <laughs> so they do that. So after the game, I always have four or five little ideas when I go into a team's mm-hmm. locker room after a game. And when I went into that locker room after the game, I go fishing a little bit. What happened here that really worked, whatever. And so I'm talking to Peyton, and I bring up this play, and and he basically jumped on it right away. He said, <laughs> he said, yeah, that's you know that's our doobie pump, and you know <laughs> it's it's basically this play where when Drew Brees pumps it to Michael Thomas in the slot, it draws it because everybody knows that Michael Thomas is his go-to guy. It draws attention to Michael Thomas. And no one, they're definitely not doubling Keith Kirkwood outside. Um, <laughs> and even though they're not doubling him, the guy who was supposed to be with him takes a, th- a quarter of a step toward Michael Thomas. And that's just enough right. for Breeze to pull the ball back and give it to Kirkwood. But, but the coolest part of it was, and I wrote this in my column, is I went to Michael Thomas and I said to him, 
you caught 12 balls for 171 yards today. And I, my understanding is your most important play, you were probably a decoy in this game. Right. And he has this wide smile. Like, man, he didn't say this, but man, I am so glad you noticed because that <laughs> play, he said, that play is the play I'm most proud of today. He said, because guys who go to the Hall of Fame, you know, Larry Fitzgerald, Anquan Bolden, and, you know, the really great receivers, the great players, the great coaches, they recognize when you make a play like that, that you're making for the team, you know, that goes, you know, that's that's really a good thing for you to do because that it means mm-hmm. you're a team guy because – if you catch it, he caught 125 balls, and his point was a lot of people think I'm a stats guy and I'm a hog and I'm the only one who wants the ball. He goes, mm-hmm. I am thrilled that Kirkwood caught that pass. It got us back in the game. So just to me, and, you know, I'm just going to say this. I am kind of I, – I am really sort of smitten with how Sean Payton calls a game. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think the rhythm, the chances he takes and the and the and the things that he does with unknown guys like Kirkwood and Traquan Smith and Austin Carr and these guys, I'm telling you, if they go to the Super Bowl, if they win the Super Bowl, I guarantee you at least two of those guys are gonna make gigantic plays in the championship game in the Super Bowl to help them win. There's no other way to do it. I think at that point, that's been that team's identity now for a decade. Is hey, if it's not, you know, Devery Henderson, it's not Robert Meacham, it's not, um, you know, Chris Ivory who was a undrafted back when he was there. I mean, they have stars. They have guys who are highly drafted, but they get so much out of the guys on the bottom of their roster. There, you know, the wide receiver four, the third running back, guys who you yeah. don't think are going to play big roles. Who, if they're open. They're going to play big roles. So, Peter, let me ask you this. I have a question for you because I've, I've gone back and forth on this myself. And I don't know what I feel yet. Do you think Doug Peterson, not knowing what was going to happen next, obviously, do you think in that moment he should have suspected that the Saints might go for it on that fourth and one and he should have accepted the, the penalty, the holding penalty on that third and one stuff? Absolutely. No Absolutely. question about it. Really? Yes. I'm surprised you said that. There's two. There's two. Pl- that play. Now looking in retrospect, I didn't really think about it at the time. Except when right. I saw it was fourth and one, and I saw uh, Taysom Hill as the up back. I said, "Man, they might be faking this. They really need <laughs> to keep possession." And of course, they did. Yeah. Um, that was one thing. But Bill, I'll tell you what else I thought Doug Peterson aired on in this game. Okay, mm-hmm. let's let's go to uh, to the last play before the two minute warning in the fourth quarter. Uh, yep. The the Eagles are in Saints territory. Uh, they're at about the thirty five yard line, and uh, Foles is going to the line, and you can tell they're kind of hurrying up. It's like two oh seven, two oh six, two oh five, and I'm sitting up there and I'm saying. You got a timeout left. You got the two minute warning left, and you only got 35 yards to make. You don't want to give the Saints the ball back with a minute 15 to go, only needing a right. field goal to win the game. What is the, and I even said it to the, to the guy sitting next to me, Paul Schwartz of the New York Post. What is the rush here? Take your time. Get, let the two minute warning happen. Just, and, and they hurried, they hurried the snap. Now, look. I mean, that ball is an easy catch for Alshon Jeffrey. Right. It went right through his hand. It's an interception, and the game is over. And so I'm not saying that, oh, my God, see, they lost the game because of doing that, but it's, I mean, 
I, I mean, because obviously Alshon Jeffrey could have caught that, but but I but I'm I'm just saying, even if they had scored a touchdown there, I bet the Saints get the and to make it twenty one twenty, the Saints mm-hmm. then get the ball back with like I bet a minute to go. Are you telling me that you don't think Drew Brees can drive it forty yards and get in, in long Will Lutz field goal range? I look, of course. I just I thought that was, uh, and and again I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying it cost him the game, but I thought that was an awful sequence, and and there's no reason to hurry by Doug Peterson. I don't even know if anybody else noticed that, but I sure did. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. And I disagree with you, and I'll tell you why. I agree with you in that in the broader context of that game, you want to score with as little time as possible. And I think in 2018, and of course 2019, in the league we're playing in where possession means so much more than field position because it's so easy to get yards and so many offenses are effective in just racking up yards pretty much at will when they're good offenses, it you have to pay much more attention to when you score late in the fourth quarter. You can't have to bleed yeah. as much clock as possible because you can't depend on your defense to get a stop the way you could 10, even even five years ago. Five, 10 years ago, especially 20 years ago, when a lot of these coaches were coming up and they were just start, they were still playing or they were just starting as coaches. I mean, you really can't, you, you didn't have to think about that as much because the chances of a team scoring with a minute left and one timeout uh, were, weren't super high, but they're so much higher now. So I think absolutely... In that context, you have to think about scoring as late as possible, especially in a game like that uh, where you have Drew Brees on the other side of the field and a kicker who just missed a kick but is at home. Yeah. But I think, you know, from Doug Peterson's perspective, he's been aggressive the last two years. And when he's been aggressive, it's almost always been a better thing for him than being conservative. Right. And I think in that moment, I think if you're Doug Peterson, if you're Sean Payton, or if you're Dennis Allen or you're the Saints defenders, you're figuring, okay, well, they're just going to let this run to the two-minute warning. If we snap the ball at 201, we might not have a prepared defense on the field. So to me, given that they yeah. had a lot of success, they really struggled to move the ball on offense for pretty much the entire second half. I, I'm not horrified by the idea. I don't think it worked. I can totally see your point, but I, I can see why Doug Peterson would think about snapping the ball in that situation, even given that you're not trying to score in that exact moment. Yeah, I just... I don't see the logic in hurrying mm. up to score against the New Orleans Saints when all they need is a field goal. Can I tell you about my favorite new toy at home? It's my new Sonos Beam. Sonos Beam is the smart, compact sound bar for my TV and the newest addition to my home sound system. I first discovered Sonos. My daughter in San Francisco has it throughout her house. I said, hey, this is pretty cool. And I got home. I live in a fairly new building in New York City that is very, very uh, tech-friendly. So we got a Sonos beam, attached it in the in, into our television, and now it plays everything that we want to in our house. And I am able to do, I've become a little podcast freaky guy, and I'm able to uh, work during the day around the house and just listen to podcasting in, it, it, it sounds like it's a concert hall. It's beautiful. Uh, but but anyway, and not only podcast, but the TV sounds better. Everything sounds better. So anyway, I, I, I just need to tell you that this is this is real and it's spectacular as I think Jerry Seinfeld or uh, Kramer once said. Anyway, 
It plays everything I love, and there's so much to enjoy. Sonos supports over 100 streaming services. You know, I can even use the AirPlay to enjoy music and my favorite shows and podcasts from iPhone or iPad. Not only does it have all the streaming I need, but as I said, just wait until you listen. The sound is brilliant. Using my Beam fills my living room with such great sound. I can enjoy detailed stereo separation for music and crystal clear dialogue for TV, movies, podcasting. It's just terrific. And I can't believe how easy it was to set up. I, I'm seriously, 10 minutes max. It's unbelievable. There's no crazy wiring. Beam connects to my TV with one cord and syncs with my remote. Even better, that Sonos app made it so easy to set up. And here was something I wasn't expecting. Amazon Alexa is built in. Alexa, play the Peter King podcast. How good is that? I get all of the benefits with, of having Alexa, and now I even have hands-free control of my music. I can even use my voice to turn the TV on or off and adjust the volume. So get your Sonos today. Don't wait. Don't you want to listen to music in one room and a podcast in another, or send sound from your TV everywhere so you never miss a second of the action? Create the ultimate entertainment center with your Beam, Sonos Beam. Go online to get yours today. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. There's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mask, great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice, I am so sorry, I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule, I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. I want to ask you about one other play call, and then we'll go quickly on the two games. And I hate to be living mm -hmm. in the past, but here's it's the Rams and the Cowboys. Rams are up 23 to 15. There's seven minutes left mm -hmm. in the game. It's fourth and goal at the Cowboys one yard line. Cowboys got one of the better run defenses in the league. Now, the Rams obviously were having a good day running the ball, but their previous three plays They'd gotten zero, five, and zero yards. And mm -hmm. so uh, Sean McVay, seven minutes to go, needing one score to make, needing a field goal to make it a two score game, an easy field goal, the easiest field goal that Greg Zerline would kick in his life, you know, yardage wise. <laughs> and right. he chooses to go for it. And I understand he made it. And it and it all looks great. Now you're up thirty to fifteen, game over, all that stuff. Well, I mean, 
game basically is over when it's 26 to 15 too. And I just, I, I, that's one of those plays where I thought, even though it worked, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, and McVeigh afterwards talking about, Hey, we're going to, we're going to take risks. We're going to be bold. That's the kind of team we mm-hmm. are. Well, what would you have thought if you were bold, you get stoned right there and the Cowboys mm-hmm. go on a drive, which is obviously unlikely that they're going to drive at 99 yards. But if they do and they get a two point conversion, there's a minute 30 to go and you're tied instead of being up 11 mm-hmm. with seven minutes to go. I, I, and obviously, so you know how I feel and I don't mean to, to prejudice you toward whatever it is you're going to say. <laughs> but did you, when you saw him go for that, were you surprised or not really? I was a little surprised. I think it's fair to say. I, I expected them to kick in that situation. But here's why I think they would have gone for it. If, if Reading what they were saying after that game, uh, when it came from the Rams' perspective, everything they were saying is talking about how they're a power football team and how they felt like over the last two weeks of the regular season, they got their offense back on track by going with a run-heavy approach and trusting their offensive line to be a physical force against any defensive line they were going to face. And I think for them, independent of, of what the numbers might say, and I'm a big numbers guy, so I'm always looking at the numbers, I think to them in that moment, they felt like they almost had to prove it to themselves, I think, that they could do it. Even though they've been running the football well all game, even though I think they were the better football team of the two, and their offensive line has been great really good all year except for the Bears game where Bears are going to make a lot of teams look bad on offense I don't think that's the Rams fault necessarily um I I think they had to prove it to themselves I think it was a moment where they felt like you know if if they got that fourth down if they didn't settle for the field goal they were going to feel much better about themselves going into not only the end of that game but also next week against uh, the winner of the Saints game I hate to do this to you now but I'm going to ask you in about a minute each to go over these two (laughs) games um We'll start in New Orleans. Rams at Saints, 80 points scored the first time they met. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was a uh, a high-scoring affair again. What do you see and who do you like? Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a little bit of a different sort of game. It could still be high-scoring, but I think it's going to come down to basically how it keeps to lead factors into this game because he didn't play the first time. And the Saints didn't have Ted Ginn, so it's going to be a little different. But I think it's going to be a keeps to lead against Michael Thomas in this game. Michael Thomas, of course, is a fantastic football player, but Keith is a very good cornerback and a very good fit for what Michael Thomas likes to do in the intermediate range of the field. So uh, I think it's going to be about Drew Brees throwing to those secondary receivers and maybe making a play downfield. And he really struggled on deep passes in that game last week. He hasn't looked great on deep throws, as Doug Farrar pointed out on my podcast, since the Cowboys game. So to me, I might lean slightly towards the Rams on the neutral field, but I think in the Superdome, I think the Saints are a team that can win so many different ways. Uh, I, I just think they're going to be more, more likely to force Jared Goff into a turnover. So I'm going to lean very slightly towards the Saints. I think if it was in Los Angeles, I'd pick the Rams, but in New Orleans, I'm picking the Saints. I think Aqib Tlaib, by the way, is the Michael Irvin of NFL corners. When I covered <laughs> the Cowboys in the 90s, Michael Irvin uh, rarely was caught but if you looked at the replays very closely, you could always see him 
do stuff to corners when the refs weren't looking or when he thought the refs weren't looking. <laughs> and that's exactly what Aqib Talib is. He never in his life ever is committed pass interference. And every <laughs> single time he has contact, it's initiated by the other guy. So, but he's just, he's great. He's like, he's, he's like a, a defense attorney in a case he can't win. You know, he's always pleading his case. And I just, anyway, I really like watching him play. He's fun, but he, he's, um, he's, uh, I, I don't know that that he's had many in his career, many plays that are absolutely clean where there's no contact between him and the receiver until the ball actually hits one of their hands. But anyway, that's my thought about Tlaib. Um, (laughs) The the other game, I think, you know, when I, there are 83 points scored in the first time that the Patriots and Chiefs met. And obviously Mm -hmm. now it's going to be in the Arctic Circle in Kansas City on Sunday. (laughs) But I... I think the difference in this game, crazily, weirdly, might be Justin Houston. Because just as yeah. Tlaib did not play the first game, Houston had a hamstring injury when they played in week six, did not play in the game. And Tom Brady was never really threatened all that much. And in this game now, you know, basically with Jones and Ford and Houston on any given play, all of them, you know, could present big pressure issues for him. I think that's going to be something that McDaniels and the Patriots are really going to have to try to figure out. How are we going to block all three of these guys? But anyway, let me hear your thoughts on this one. I agree with you 100%, Peter. You, you think about Tom Brady, the way people have beat him in big games. This is not exclusive to Tom Brady, but it's you get pressure without blitzing. You get pressure with your front four. It's how the Giants won both those Super Bowls and how the Broncos won uh, when they won the AFC Championship game against the Patriots a few years ago. And that's going to be pretty pretty reasonable for the Chiefs. They have the fifth best rate of getting pressure without blitzing this year. And, of course, the Patriots are going to make plays. We know that. But in that first game, it came down to Rob Gronkowski beating uh, Chiefs backup cornerback. I think uh, I his name, Josh Shaw, maybe. He's not, not even on the team anymore. Um, and Eric, if Eric Berry plays, if Eric Berry is, you know, functional. You figure he's going to be on Gronk in those situations. Gronk does not look maybe as healthy as he looked earlier in the season. So the Patriots might not have that option. The only thing I'm worried about from the Chiefs' perspective is just so many times in these two games against the Patriots, it was throws to Kareem Hunt that really propelled that off. Excellent Kareem Hunt obviously point. is Excellent. no longer on the roster. And Damian Williams, I thought, has done a really good job. I think Damian Williams has done better than anyone could have expected from what they saw in Miami for him over the last few weeks. But is he going to be the, the equal of Kareem Hunt as a receiver in this game? Hard to say. Um, to me, I, I, I lean just very slightly towards the Patriots. I think just the Chiefs, as talented as they are, I just think they're too weak in the secondary. And I think Brady's going to make plays to his receivers. And I think that they have the the running backs, especially in the passing game, they're going to get into the Chiefs' problem in coverage. So um, I think Travis Kelsey's going to have a big game. I think the Chiefs will get a big play to Tyreek Hill at once during this game. But I just think in a close game, I just have to lean towards the Patriots. I, I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather stick with the Patriots too long and be wrong than jump off the bandwagon one year too early. <laughs> That's a great way to look at it. I feel almost exactly the same way. I think I would probably pick New England. Not feel great about it. And a couple of my <laughs> friends who like to bet money on games, I've said I think you're 
idiots to bet anything on this particular game. <laughs> I think it's – I have no idea who's going to win. Um, the one I, – I think the two other very interesting, very small – not small factors, but the things I would also consider is that, you know, the Patriots, mm-hmm. um, you know, have played the Chiefs twice in the last two years. You know, opening right. day 2017 – uh, they gave up 42 points, and Tyreek Hill burned them. But you're right. I mean, that was a big Kareem Hunt game, but Tyreek Hill burned them seven catches, 100-something, a touchdown. And this year, in Foxborough again, week six, Tyreek Hill, seven catches, uh, 170 yards or whatever it was, uh, and three touchdowns. The Patriots really need an icy track, in my opinion, and and again, mm-hmm. that's not going to be the be all end all. But Tyreek Hill has killed the Patriots. And and the one other thing that you mentioned about Damian Williams, I, I think he I think he's a good back. I don't think he's a great back. I think for my sake, he he runs backwards and sideways too often. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right. he needs to go to the Mike Shanahan one cut and get up field school. Um, but mm-hmm. you're right. He's been better than anybody would have thought. And this thought occurred to me. I think they made a bad free agent signing with Sammy Watkins, paid way too much to to a guy who's chronically injured, um, pay him $16 million a year. But they got Damian Williams for nothing off the Dolphins' bench. And so that really almost neutralizes the bad contract they signed with with Watkins, having great insurance in this case with Williams. So he's not going to be at all what Kareem Hunt is. But, I mean, hey, he's maybe 82% of Kareem Hunt. And in my opinion, that's better than they could have ever expected. Absolutely. And I think interesting thing about Tyree Kill, and I guess I'll finish up here, just in terms of, how the Patriots typically cover number one receivers in years past, not always, but this is more often than not the case. They would stick their top cornerback on the number two guy on the other team, let him play one-on-one and then have Devin McCourty play over the top with the second cornerback, uh, you know, your JC Jackson's uh, against the other team's number one corner wide receiver. So you double the number one guy with your second best corner and McCourty number two guy on the other team is up against your Stefan Gilmore. They've switched that a little bit over the course of the year. They have had Stefan Gilmore play the number one guy on the other team, man on man to man, more often than you might think. So I wonder if they switch that in this game and sort of say, hey, we're going to take our chances with our best cornerback. Even though Tyreek Hill is incredible, we're going to put our best guy on your best guy, double Travis Kelsey, and then dare you to beat us with Chris Conley uh, and the guys at that ilk on the bottom of your receiving core. And Bill, that's why I had you on the podcast. You know why? (laughs) Because you're good. And I really, really appreciate you joining me. (laughs) My pleasure, Peter. Anytime. It's a great honor. Support for the Peter King Podcast comes from Wix.com. It's W-I-X.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. You choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. You can share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. That's how easy it is. 
More than 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. So create yours today. Get started now. Go to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Peter King to get 10% off. And now my conversation with longtime NFL executive Joe Banner. Back on the Peter King Podcast, very happy to be joined by Joe Banner, longtime uh, NFL front office executive, uh, was the uh, president of the Philadelphia Eagles, and Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, from 2001 to 2012, and from you got there in 95, from 95 to 2001, you were in the front office, obviously, and after that, you went to both the Browns, and then you consulted with the Atlanta Falcons. And uh, so I, I welcome you to the podcast and have a couple of topics to discuss with you. But first, how are you doing? I'm doing great, yeah. and I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you. Okay. So let's, you obviously, you have some uh, sort of insider trading type of information about Nick Foles, about Carson Wentz, about the Philadelphia Eagles. And what they might do going forward with I with what I would call uh, a pretty difficult decision of what to do, you know, with a quarterback who has missed thirteen of his team's last twenty four games due to injury, including both postseason runs in two thousand seventeen and eighteen. Carson Wentz, and uh, you know, knowing that you have him. Uh, under contract uh, for next year, and also knowing that if you choose to, and you're Howie Roseman, the general manager, Doug Peterson, the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, you could choose to bring um, Nick Foles back, the Super Bowl hero last year, and who played great down the stretch this year. You could choose to bring him back this year, or uh, you also could uh, figure a way to either trade him or let him go in free agency, which seems quite unlikely. But anyway, I just, I, I'm curious, as somebody who knows the owner of this franchise very well, Jeffrey Lurie, who knows all of the players involved in this very well, just a gut feeling, what, do you have any thoughts on what, not only what they should do, but what they will do? Well, my insight comes from having been with those guys and knowing how they think, as opposed to having any recent conversations, just to be clear. And one of the things those guys do really well, and I think the winning teams league do really well, is how do we balance our short-term desire to be the best we can be without putting ourselves in a position where we're totally ignoring the long-term. And I think that will be really fundamental to this decision because I think they really, really believe in Wentz. He's younger. For the moment, he's less expensive, but that will change. And they control his rights for two more years. On the other hand, they could keep Foles for a year, uh, but they'd have to make a really significant cap uh, investment, which, by the way, will be money that they could push into future years to help them offset the cost of Wentz. So it's not just looking at 2019. They'll run cap models for 19, 20, 21 with Foles' money in it if they wanted to try to find a way to keep him and Foles' money out of it as well as factoring extension for Wentz. And they'll look at, you know, will we really be keeping ourselves to st 
stay in a position to compete once we have a $30 million quarterback. I think their actions tell us which quarterback they think is better, not factoring in the injury. When they came back this season, Foles had won them the Super Bowl last year. Once was coming off an injury, and when the season started and training camp started, there was no ambiguity of who's going to start. So I think we know who they think is the better quarterback, who also has to be younger and at least for the immediate future, cheaper. You've gone through situations like this uh, a lot, and I'm I'm thinking of of a few in particular, but not quite exactly like this one. And I wonder in this particular case, you know, as somebody who is has been over the years, and certainly when you work for the Eagles, was very close to Jeffrey Lurie, uh, who seems to me to be uh, an idealist, but also an extreme pragmatist. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to know, you, you, if you were in their offices today, and Jeffrey Lurie was... Uh, giving an opinion or trying to influence at all the decision that's going to be made, what do you think his opinion is? Just obviously, as you say, not knowing anything, but knowing the man himself. I think he'll be uh, tortured, maybe slightly too strong a word, but not too far. But I also think you described him perfectly. He's an idealist and a pragmatist. And I think he realizes as as affectionate as he may feel towards Nick, his incredible appreciation for what he's done and and his relief, as well as excitement about winning a Super Bowl, he's going to realize that it's not practical to keep both guys and that he's going to believe that Wentz is the better long-term answer, really gives him a chance to have a solution at that position for at least 10 years with somebody that they love and they loved from before they even drafted him, and he's done nothing other than the injuries, in my opinion, to hurt that evaluation. So I think he'll be torn. I think he'll wish there was any other way to do it. I think they will try to find out if there's any chance Nick just loves it there enough that there's some economic way, well short of what's on paper at the moment, that he considers staying. But I think if push came to shove, he's going to make the decision. We have to move on from falls. We should see what value we can get out of that. And Wentz is our guy for the long term. You know, this thought has occurred to me, Joe, and I wonder um, if it's occurred to you as well. Nick Foles has had two chances to be a starter in the NFL so far. You know, it, it, you know, a team says you're our starter. One with the Philadelphia Eagles under Chip Kelly, where he had the one incredible stat year with 27 touchdowns and two interceptions. And then the following year where, you know, he wasn't nearly as good or productive as that. And then obviously he got he he gets he gets traded. And then he gets a shot with a bad team at the time, the St. Louis Rams. So you could argue that anytime he's been given um, the starting job, with the exception of his one great Philadelphia year, um, you could argue that he he has not uh, performed like a great long-term starter. It almost seems bizarre to say that now based on what he's done uh, after the middle of December the last two years, but, you know, you, the truth is the truth. I guess I guess my question would be, if you're the Eagles, do you think you have some doubt uh, if, if in the absolute long shot you committed to Nick Foles that he would be what he has seemed the last two Januaries? So 
So what's interesting is I would say he has the most interesting and maybe unusual storyline of any player I can ever think of in football. I mean, he's really been at such extremes. I don't know if you can think of somebody where you get this kind of a story. It's such an important high visibility position. Only Kurt Warner, time. quite honestly. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good. No, that's a good name. That, that, I mean, at times he's looked like he didn't belong in the league. At times he almost chose to leave the league. Yeah, and at other times he's been the MVP of the Super Bowl. So it's a very difficult evaluation to make. I think that the Eagles are probably fairly confident in him if they were to commit to him. Uh, but there's still going to be a small piece of doubt. I also don't think there's any doubt that they have a higher level of confidence in Wentz if we're staying on the original question there. But if I'm another team looking at Foles, you know, what do I count on that I'm getting? You know, how much do I pay him? If I have to make a trade, what do I give up? It is far from a sure thing. But look at some of the guys that we've seen get $18, 20000000 million contracts over the last couple of years who are quarterbacks that we weren't sure of either and didn't have anything on their resume, like MVP of the Super Bowl. So there, there is an uncertainty, no doubt about it. But that doesn't mean he won't be in significant demand when the door opens and people are allowed to kind of show us their hand. Um, I'm going to tell you what, what I think I would try to do if I were Howie, Howie Roseman and Doug Peterson. I think I would say to Foles, listen, if you right now tell us absolutely categorically um, you want to be a starting quarterback somewhere, uh, then we're not going to hold you. We, we, you've done too much for this franchise, and as much as we would like to keep you, we will, we will give in to your wishes, and we'll do the best we can. We will not trade you in the division, but we'll also, if you say to us, I do not want to go to pick a team, Cincinnati or whatever, then we won't trade you to Cincinnati, but uh, we we would we would be we if if that's what you tell us then we will uh, trade you to somewhere that won't be a competitive disadvantage for us uh, and also could be good for you. But two, if you choose to stay for this one year, um, we would pay you what would be about I guess eleven percent of their cap next year, and with no guarantees about who would play opening day next year. Um, but we would definitely want you, and then we would agree to not put uh, the franchise tag on you uh, in 2020, and you would become an unrestricted free agent, you know, March 1, 2020, or whatever it would be. That's kind of what I would do, and I understand when people say, man, it's an incredible amount of money to invest in a starting quarterback who's not, or in a, in a quarterback who may not, he may not play a snap, and to pay him $20 million. But I guess I would say that you never need life insurance until you need life insurance. And I uh, I think, especially in a year where you're not paying Wentz much money, you'd still be paying your top, your three quarterbacks less probably than 25, to 23 teams in the NFL. So that's what I would probably want to try to do. I want you to poke, poke a hole in what my theory is. Well, the theory the problem is that they've constructed a roster um, that is pretty committed for next year, should have a chance to compete at the highest level, that would be significantly disrupted by now adding what was not anticipated, uh, being a $20 million 
backup quarterback. Um, for, you know, when we buy insurance, we hopefully pay, let's say we pay $5,000 for some kind of coverage. Uh, and hopefully the value of what we get back is a little bit more than that. If you pay $20 million for somebody who may not even play, the disparity between what you may get and the cost is so huge, it's hard to justify. And remember, as I said earlier, in 2020, they're going to have to pay once $30 million plus. The fact that they used up $20 million in 2019 that could have been pushed into the 2020 season or could have been used to make the 2019 team even better with people they know will play, you know, could be a really huge consequence on the team for a number of years. So I'm just on a risk-reward uh, analysis of the thing. They could absolutely end up in the point where they're going to wish they had falls. But the chances of that, even though it's happened twice, are still relatively small. And am I really going to do something that's going to hamper my ability to be the best I can be in 19 and significantly impact my team in 20 you know, for that, you know, my flip, this is what I think they'll do. Um, I do think they'll see before the option even comes up, whether or not there's significant interest with real compensation available to them in a trade. If the answer to that is clearly no, uh, I don't think they'll do anything. I think they'll let the contract expire and they'll let him be free and make his best deal, in which case they'll get a comp pick, which will almost certainly be a third round pick. If they think there's at least maybe some trade value, I believe they'll exercise the option, the $20 million. I believe he'll then pay back the $2 million to be free. And I think that they will then wait till the last minute. And if they have a trade, they'll franchise tag him. It has to be for more than the three. And if they don't have a trade, then they'll let him hit the market and just get the comp pick at the end of the year. So I think there's three points at which they're going to feel out the value in the marketplace. And I do not think any of them will include him being on the team next year. I just, I would have to disagree with you, maybe not vehemently, but really disagree with you saying that there's a relatively small chance, um, you know, that he'd be needed next year. I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. Okay, you can say the knee injury is fluky, but now this year, now you're getting into the back. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and this is a guy who gets hit a lot. This is a guy who is publicly stated he's not going to change the way he plays. Maybe Doug Peterson can talk to him about changing the way he plays. I don't know. And it's also a situation where, I mean, and again, this is probably unfair, but this is a guy who has had three great months. He wasn't great this year, and he wasn't great as a rookie. And so you add all that together, and to me, the twenty million bucks I'd have to spend, or twenty-three million, um, you know, or whatever the number is, whatever I would have to spend, I would spend it knowing that, you know, on April first or whenever you get this deal done, you you end up deciding, I'd be able to sleep a lot better at night, even if it would. And, and Joe, you know what? What I need to also say is, I fully realize that if if the Eagles did what I suggest, they're probably going to lose something that they don't want to lose. They might lose a, a, a really good player, somebody like Brandon Graham. I, and, and, and maybe at that point I would say, okay, I give, uh, let Foles go. But 
I don't know. I've just seen uh, in in you know two consecutive post December fifteenth how incredibly valuable this guy was, how much his teammates love him, and it's just a unique situation. In my opinion, for one year, I think it's worth 11% of the cap. But I think at the end of the day, you're probably right. I think they're going to do the pragmatic thing and feel sick about it and let and somehow, some way, probably let Foles go. Yeah, and listen, you're, you're right. It comes down to how do you rate the risk of him being needed and then how sure are you that he then carries the day? Because let's say you spent the $20 million on Falls for one year, Wentz gets hurt, and you get eliminated in the first round of the playoffs. You're going to feel like, oh, boy, we just spent $20 million, and here we are, we're eliminated in the first round, or even the second round of the playoffs. You may really feel like, oh, I'm going to spend $20 million. I want to believe we're going to win the Super Bowl, even if Wentz gets hurt, because we believe that much in Falls. And you're right, it will cost them Brandon Graham and maybe even Jernigan or Brandon Graham and Hicks, you know, the linebacker they have as a free agent. I mean, it's $20 million worth of players uh, unless they're willing to borrow from the future. And with a quarterback who's about to have his salary quadrupled, I would think that's very unwise. Yeah. Um, well, Joe, that's great. I appreciate your... Um, um your 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 sort of strategery there in the limited time we have left i wanted to ask you just a little bit i i i did not like the way this round of coaching hires went um i thought as usual there was a sprint to get a bunch of guys who i have no idea if they're going to be any good or not you know cliff kingsbury and matt lafleur zach taylor uh, I, I just, I, uh, you know, I, I at least Freddie Kitchens, I totally understand why the Browns did that, even though, uh, you know, he was on nobody's radar even two months ago, three months ago to even be on their staff in 2019 as a position coach. So it's a bizarre situation, but but I I am especially curious. You're somebody who's had to hire coaches before, who's been in job searches for coaches before. And I want to know what you thought of this cycle and as you sat back and looked at it, and maybe if you ever had another shot, what would you be looking for in your coach? So this is a question that I'm, I'm, I love talking about right now. You know, we're hiring six, seven, eight coaches a year. And maybe one of them is turning out to be a good coach. And no one is flipping how they're thinking about it. And I go all the way back to almost 25 years ago when we hired Andy Reid. He'd never been a coordinator. He'd never called a play. He'd never been a head coach at any level. So why did you pick, why did you pick him? This is exactly what I'm getting to. I'm not claiming this is the end-all answer, but I think it helps shift the thinking. We were looking for, one, a phenomenal leader. Two, somebody who could evaluate people to hire and manage them very effectively. Three, someone who's obsessively uh, driven by attention to detail. You know, uh, four, someone who had an absolute philosophy about which no one could talk them off of. We didn't care what the philosophy was, but we wanted somebody that had worked hard, thought hard, had incredible conviction about their beliefs, because we didn't think you could lead if you didn't have clarity of vision. And we had a series of things that we literally created a list of eight things that were like the things 
And for years after we hired Andy Reid, he started having success. People used to call me and say, why did you hire Andy? And I used to go through this list. Had nothing to do with him being a good coordinator. Had nothing to do with him coming from a winning organization. Had nothing to do with his age. Had nothing to do whether he was an offensive coach or defense. Nothing. Well, here we are 25 years later. After failed collective searches, I'm talking the six, seven, eight guys hired each year. Obviously, there have been some successes along the way. And the thinking hasn't evolved at all, at least as it's reflected in the hires. You just rattled off that list. Now, the probability is that some or one will be successful, although we have years there's none. But I want to ask these people that did the hiring, which of the things on the list I just gave you that are also true about everybody from Bill Walsh and Joe Gibbs all the way up to Bill, Par- Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick, which of the things on the list I just gave you do you think the coach you just hired represent? And that doesn't preclude them from being successful. It just makes the odds a lot longer. And I just don't understand what the track record that the league has collectively over many years, why there's no evolution of the thinking. The job description of an offensive coordinator and head coach are night and day. So why isn't that getting reflected in the process and the hiring? So I agree with you. Uh, I couldn't agree with more, and I don't understand why we're seeing no evolution despite the failed history in this area. Um, I think my biggest issue is that in many of these cases, and and look, I don't. I truly don't want to pick on any team individually for a very simple reason. I wasn't in the room when they talked to him. I, I don't know every certainly one one thousandth of what was said or discussed, you know, in these eight interview settings. So I, I, it's silly for me to sit here and say, well, Matt Lafleur is a dumb pick. I don't know if he's. I, I can't tell you. But the only point that I would make is that I might argue with you that the best coach who was hired last year. I think there were seven last year. The best coach who was hired last year, even though Matt Nagy might, might win the coach of the year, and he got my vote for coach of the year in Chicago, winning 12 games after they had finished last in their division four years in a row. So he did a phenomenal job. But I don't think anybody did a better job than Frank Reich. Mm -hmm. And the Indianapolis Colts absolutely positively stumbled into Frank Reich with no intention whatever to hire Frank Reich. And the only reason they hired him is because Josh McDaniels pulled out two days after the Super Bowl. And then here the 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 Colts go back and basically start over and start new because a lot of the guys who they wanted, you know, like Mike Vrabel, were hired elsewhere. So they start anew and they end up hiring a guy who is a brilliant hire for their team at this time in history. And so my, I think my biggest problem with all of this is I almost want, if I had a job, if I had a job, if I, if I were picking a job, I would, I, I, there is no question I would do this. I would let everybody make their hires. Everybody. I don't I think the most overrated thing I've ever heard is, well, then you're not going to get a great staff. I'll get a fine staff. I mean, and I'll but I'll get to that in a second. But what I would do is I would let the seven uh, if there were eight teams, I'd let the seven teams hire their guy by January 12th. OK, you, you, OK, so seven are hired. Now, you know what I have? 
I have essentially, um, you know, either four or eight teams, depending on when exactly everybody's hired. Let's say I have eight teams left that, for the most part, have are are untouched. You know, for for the most part, they're not going to have a guy taken off their team. Now, this year, Flory's from New England uh, and Zach Taylor from the Rams. They're going to get hired here as the final two. But but most times, the vast majority of, of these coaching staffs that go far into the playoffs are untouched. And I will take my chances waiting until February 7th and then just saying, okay, we're starting our search right now. So poke holes in that and tell me why that's wrong. Well, first of all, I'm not, I'm not sure you are wrong because I'm advocating a complete change in how we think about this. <clears throat> and, and yours is an interesting thought on how to completely change how we think about this because how we're doing it isn't working. Now, you do get into some practical things. I agree that the issues around the coaching staff is exaggerated, but I don't agree it's irrelevant. There also is a limitation. I forget what the date is after which teams do not need to give you permission so you do get to a point where you will be restricted to just the teams that are left playing. I mean, even a coordinator for a head coaching job, I forget what the date is. It is after the Super Bowl, so your concept at least works as long as you don't take too long after that. There is a point at which they can deny you permission, you know, regardless of that. So, but I don't want to lock into an answer. What I think the key is, is to really step back and identify what are the characteristics of the people that are really succeeding at this job. Whether I'm doing it early or late, whether I'm looking at college or I'm position coaches or coordinators, try to learn from the history of what are the qualities that are truly translating into success in this job and do the best you can to find somebody with as many of those qualities as you possibly can. I mean, there were a couple of things to me that were a little bit refreshing this year. I mean, you mentioned Freddie Kitchens. I don't know how he's going to do either. But to hire somebody who wasn't on the radar very recently, who doesn't look the part, who doesn't have their traditional resume, you know, that shows a little open-mindedness to me, and I'm encouraged to see that. You know, you watch a guy like Matt Iberflus, you're mentioning the situation in Annapolis. He's been in the league 11 years before he even became a coordinator. How many other guys like Freddie Kitchens and Matt Iberflus are there out there that are capable of doing way more than we're asking them to do right now that could even be on the head coaching discussion or conversation, or at the very least should be moving, you know, through the phases that let you get into the position of being a head coach consideration. So I don't reject your idea. I don't think there's any idea that should be rejected right now because what we're doing is not working and somebody needs to just completely flip the card and start with a new blank chalkboard on what's the best way to go about doing this to produce the best outcome. And I wouldn't take any idea off the table until we had a full discussion like that. Joe, you made me smarter in the last 26 minutes. I lied. I said it would be shorter than that, but you were gracious enough to um, to give me a good deal of your time, and I really, really appreciate it. Well, always a pleasure. Happy to do it anytime. Enjoy talking to you, Peter. Thanks to my guests, Bill Barnwell of ESPN and longtime NFL executive Joe Banner. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast series, such as my conversations with Matt Nagy, John Lynch, and Adam Schefter. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. 
You can also hear the Peter King Podcast on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Sonos and Wix. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.